Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation, the book of Revelation in chapter 7. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, it is a privilege to be here, as I said this morning. I'm glad to repeat it this evening. I also didn't know that I was going to have the chance uh, to share the pulpit with uh, Pep Guardiola, and uh, it, it really means a great deal to me. I'd like to remind him, too, that probably the most famous player who ever played for Real Madrid was, in fact, Hungarian. His name was Ferenc Puskas, and uh, so there you have it. I... Uh, I want to correct something that was said this morning. Somebody said that I would rather be watching a football match than being here tonight. I know it was meant in jest, but I want to respond in all sincerity. There is no place I would rather be right now than the privileged place in which I find myself. What I did say was, it is very interesting that the one evening they invited me to speak would be the evening when Manchester United were playing Spurs. It was no comment beyond that. With that said, by means of modern technology, my iPad is at the present time recording that game and won't won't betide anybody who happens to mention the score to me on my way out. It'll be the end of a very short friendship, I can guarantee you. I I do want to apologize uh, to Jamie uh, because when she showed me her book list this evening, I said, oh goodness, what are these coloring books? And they are coloring books. I didn't realize that. And I love coloring books. It's one of the great things about being a senior citizen. You get to do that unashamedly. And and in actual fact, when I was thinking about uh, Jose Moreno uh, talking here about writing books, I was saying to myself, that's the kind of book I should write, a coloring book. And uh, it'll be, I can imagine the town, you know, announcing that for me. Uh, Berg has finally hit his stride and uh, has, has given us a coloring book. Well, anyway... Uh, the book of Revelation is something of a coloring book itself. In fact, I think if you give the book of Revelation to the average eight- or nine-year-old boy or girl, they can figure it out. Unfortunately, some of us who have lived a little longer have made such a mess of it over time uh, that we've, we've lost the plot almost entirely. I say it with, uh, with great respect. And who but uh, somebody dim uh, would decide to read from Revelation 7 in a context like this? I take comfort in the fact that Calvin never expounded Revelation because he said he couldn't understand it. Well, I, I, that's one thing I agree with him on, definitely. So here we go, Revelation 7, verse 1. I, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then you have that list. Uh, between verses 5 and 8, and then verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A brief prayer. Gracious God, towards the end of the day, when our minds have been on all kinds of things and we've been involved in all kinds of responsibilities, we pray uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit will come and uh, meet with us and bring your word to us appropriately and kindly and in a, in a life-changing way. Uh, we're, not, we're not interested in somebody just talking about Revelation 7 and then trying to give us a few practical pointers. Uh, we want to have an encounter with you, the living God, by the Holy Spirit, through your word. And so we say in our hearts, make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself. Show me my Savior. And make the book live to me. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I have had occasion already to be in one of the bookstores in the town, and I was looking at some of the newer pieces, particularly in the work of fiction. And I am particularly interested in books like P.D. James and detective books and things like that. And I've never been able to understand a number of my friends who tell me that they read the end before they read the rest of the book. There's something about being a Scotsman that says you shouldn't do that, uh, because after all, you've had to pay nearly 12 pounds for the thing, <laughs> and you've taken all the excitement out of it immediately. I mean, if you were going to do that, you should have just gone in the bookstore and read the end of it and uh, been a proper Scotsman about it and left the thing behind. I don't understand it. It's difficult for me to understand. But, you know, when it comes to the unfolding drama of history, when it comes to the question, where are we in the world? Where is our world in the scheme of things? Where is the church in the vastness of the world? What is going on? Then it is a tremendous thing to be able to go to the end of the story and to realize how that informs everything else. And surely, sooner or later, during these days, someone, either myself or someone else, would turn to this particular passage of Scripture. After all, if we take even the statistics, some of them that we've heard this evening, 18 countries in Europe with less than 1% of the population with any real understanding of the gospel and knowledge of God, we might be forgiven for thinking, well, the game is over. It's full time. The whistle can be blown. Nothing is going to happen now. What are we to do when our endeavors seem incredibly feeble, when the gains that we make in comparison to the inroads of a secular culture seem all too small? Well, it is then, you see, that it is important for us to go immediately to the end. And as I say, a 10-year-old boy can figure out revelation. If you give it to him, he will come back and tell you, pastor or 
Grandpa, I have figured it out. This is what it says. God wins. God wins. At the end of it all, there is no question that a goal is going to be scored, as happened the other day in Glasgow, in the final moment that will change the outcome of things. Because, in actual fact, all world history is ultimately defined by salvation history. Indeed, we can go as far as to say that the study of history itself cannot be understood without the Word of God to interpret it. If you think about the exercise of studying history in a contemporary university, how are we to make sense of the great movements that have taken place throughout time? How are we to understand that although we've had so many opportunities to recalibrate, to restart, to redefine, to fix everything, that we still live tonight in a fractured and a broken world? In fact, it is so broken that just about everyone that you care to meet will be prepared to admit that. They may not have the same explanation for its brokenness, but they understand that it is broken. So, how are we to make sense of it? Well, it is the Bible that answers the question. And it is also the Bible that tells us that the perfection of God's purposes in creation will one day be completely realigned in a new heaven and in a new earth, that God establishes the perfection in the Garden of Eden, in the community that is there in relationship to God and in His, in his engagement with those whom He has made. Then you have a mutiny, and as a result of the mutiny, there is a scattering, and as a result of the scattering, there is increased chaos and brokenness and disintegration. And indeed, when you think about our world tonight, the great movements of time have been largely and remain to try somehow or another and create community out of all of this disunity. It's not for me to talk about that in relationship to the referendum that involved the Scots or to the great questions that involve Rhys Mogg, that tall fellow that wears a suit every day, or whatever it might be about that. But I do know this, that my Bible addresses the subject, and that Habakkuk, many, many years before the arrival of Jesus, wrote that the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and that the acts of God in history and in time are never coincidental. They have not taken place in time as an afterthought, if you like, in response to the contingent, but the very reality of God's purposes. When you read, for example, at the beginning of Ephesians, are these that God, from the very eternal counsels of His will, has been working everything according to His great plan and His great scheme. And the message is that He will bring to fruition that which he has purposed, that it is God's unmistakable purpose to put together a people that are his very own, that he's putting them together, as, as John tells us here, from every tribe and nation and people and language and tongue, that none of them will be missing, and that the story will be completed. Well, says somebody, if that is the case, and he's going on with that, is the message then that we should just lighten up, you know, just sort of write it out? No, it is that we should buckle up, that we should engage, because the multitude about which we've just read in Revelation 7 is not there uh, automatically. 
It is there as a result of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. The multitude that is described for us there, which will be, is as a result of men and women doing as the Lord Jesus said, and that is taking the gospel to their friends, to their neighbors, to those who as yet have never heard. Now, if we can imagine that this picture, if you can see it in your mind's eye, some of you are artists, and you can perhaps even paint it, but, uh, or we could have uh, perhaps a page in, in one of those coloring books, and uh, we can have Revelation 7. I don't see why not. Uh, I suggest it to you. So, we're go- you, have this, you have this great big picture then that is there. Now, let me just say to you, uh, think about some of the pencil sketches, if you like, or the charcoal sketches that we had to do at art. I was very, very poor at art, and uh, I was left actually one day to draw a chair. If the art teacher had not taken the paper away, I'd still be sitting there just now. It was, you never saw anything look less like a chair in all your life. But, but I do know that you, you don't go straight to the end product. You're supposed to sketch in a little. Well, we're not going to do an overview of the entire Bible, but the the charcoal sketches that lead up to Revelation 7 are multivarious, all the way back, for example, to God's covenant with Abraham, his promise to Abraham that he's going to multiply his seed, that his offspring will be as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, that the covenant of God, both as expressed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is, as I say, God's free decision to call out for himself a people and to bring them to himself as a result of the work of his dearly beloved Son. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. And the way in which that unfolds through the Bible is a fantastic drama, isn't it? And it doesn't only happen with the the big names, as it were. If if you've read Middlemarch uh, by George Eliot, uh, then you know that there are some purple passages in that book. And at one point, she talks about how uh, some of the greatest things that have been affected in time have been carried out by many, quotes who, loved, who lived faithfully a hidden life and lie buried in unvisited tombs. It's a wonderful sentence, isn't it? that the impact on the world has so often taken place, not as a result of the people who have a name or who have a prominence or whatever it might be. I was thinking about it as I just came back from Germany and, uh, and actually from Prague before that, and the work of Huss, whom you remember was martyred there in, in Prague. And how did the gospel make such an impact on Huss? Well, it was largely the, the work of Tyndale and his translations of the Bible. But of course, Tyndale was exterminated. And many of his servants who came from Saxony returned to Saxony and returned to Saxony with the good news of the work that Tyndale had been doing. Who are these people? Do you know any of their names? No. Do you remember that little girl, as it's, as it's translated in the ESV? A little girl was carried off by the Syrians who invaded her land. And that little girl ended up working in service. She worked in the service of Naaman. And it was that little girl with no name, apparently, who said, you know, if only my master would see the prophet is in Samaria. And off he went, and then he didn't like it. And then he got in a fit of rage. 
And who was it that said to him, goodness gracious, if he'd asked you to do something else, you would probably have done it. But why wouldn't you do this? My father, if the prophet had told you to do this this thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Who was it that said that? One of the servants. What was his name? We don't know his name. What was he doing? Well, he was setting forward the purposes of God. If you look very carefully to the painting, you'll see that Naaman is there. As a result of what? That is a result of that. And what about the sorry providences of God in the life of Naomi? A triple bereavement. The end in many ways. The bitterness that grips her. From a human perspective, you would say that this is just a a disaster of epidemic proportions. And yet, what does God do? He uses the triple bereavement in the life of Naomi to bring a a Moabite girl by the name of Ruth and put her in the picture. And if you know anything about Ruth, you know she has a very interesting family tree that flows from her. Now, we could go on, and you say, please don't go on, and I won't go on, because we are going to go through and see the display, and they give you coffee through there. I love it when you get free stuff. And uh, so, I have that very much in mind. But we, we could go on, and, and we will actually th- through the week as we work our way through the Gospels. Uh, we can think about some who are being added as a result of Christ-shaped mission. The disciples, as we said this morning, needed to learn this. Uh, after the resurrection, uh, they were very keen with a very nationalistic fervor. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking in national terms. They were still thinking about a restored temple. They were still thinking about the overturning of the Roman Empire. They were still thinking about their, uh, the establishment of their own people. And Jesus says to them, no, well, we're not going to do that at all. You're going to have to have your view of history completely recalibrated. And it's going to have to be recalibrated in light of the giving of the Holy Spirit and in my command to you to proclaim the gospel because you are my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is explaining to them that that instead of the expected glorious reign of the king in a new Jerusalem, the scepter— of the risen Christ is the preached word that is then the focus of the worldwide missionary endeavor of the church. The scepter of Christ is the preached word, the gossiped word, the conveyed word, the reading of the Bible with one person in your office, the reading of the Bible with someone at your school, the sharing of the little bit of the good news. This is the scepter whereby Christ ushers people into his kingdom. And hence, the vital importance of being both under the teaching of the Word and at the same time submitting to its authority. When Peter finally grasped it, and it took him a wee while along the way, you you remember when he finally ends up at the home of Cornelius, it all suddenly comes together for him in dramatic fashion. Acts 10, 34, he says, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. There's a lesson for British people. There's a lesson for Americans. There's a lesson for those of us who always thought that we had favored nation status. You know, we know God loves the world, but he really loves Scotland. That's his place, you know. Or he really loves Ireland or Ulster, whatever you want it to be. 
Peter said, no, no, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. The gospel transcends all man-made barriers of race, giving us a story to tell to the nations. Now, back to the big picture. Well, you said, I thought you would never would. Well, that's all right. Just hold on. The main picture is there. Cast your eyes in your imagination. You're an imaginative group, I can tell. As those of you who are not already in the third stages of anesthesia, I, um, I think you can imagine this picture, a multitude that no one could count. Ah, oh, but says somebody, you're not going to skip out of that part that you didn't want to read. What about the 144,000? Well, as I've wandered around, I have the answer for you. If you go to the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they will sort that out for you. <laughs> because they apparently have got it buttoned down. No, there are many theories, as wild and as unnecessary, as have preoccupied the minds of people who should have known better. I remember many years ago working in a restaurant somewhere, and my colleague was a girl called Rosie. And one night I told her about the end of the world and about the second coming of Jesus, and she stopped me mid-sentence. She said, Alistair, would you please stop that? She says, I don't want to hear about the second coming of Jesus because I haven't even figured out his first coming. All right? So just a little word, a little flea in the ear of those of you who like to go immediately to the 144,000. Let me give you my best, my best chance at it. I think we're on the right track. When you read this chapter and you see uh, the number and the multitude as one and the same company. Now, I know that's an interpretation, and I'll be out of here by Friday, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not giving you my email address. But if you think, if you think about it, uh, the perfect number of 144,000, the square of 12 by the cube of 10, and then a multitude that is so ragged on the edges that nobody could apparently count it. What John heard was this specific number. What he saw was a numberless crowd. Does it help you? It helps me to think that from a human perspective, as you look at this, it, it is vast and beyond and numberless. But from God's perspective, it is all Israel, the real Israel of Christ, the Jew and the Gentile. Again, Ephesians here is the great mystery of the gospel, says Paul, that God has made one man out of two, an entirely new man. When he writes to the Galatians, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. From our standpoint, it's a disparate group. From God's perspective, it is absolutely perfect. What does this teach us? Well, it teaches us at, this, at least this— there will be no empty seats when he gathers up that company. No one, none of us will ever stand there and say, well, who's going to sit in these seats? There will be no no-shows. There will be, if you like, no unclaimed tickets left at the will call in the entry to the pearly gates. For he who begins a good work in you brings it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is not to suggest for a moment 
that the kingdom is going to be sparsely populated. Because here's what we know. God loves saving people. He loves saving people. He sent his only son into the world because he loves saving people. So that whoever would believe in him might not perish, which is our end as sinners, but instead enjoy eternal life now and then in and with Jesus. What an amazing story. There's nothing like this in the whole world. John Stott, in 1975, had given the lectures that eventually became, I think, uh, his book, Christian Mission in the Modern World, drives this home with great effectiveness, as he always did. He says on that occasion, world mission, in other words, engaging people with the gospel, is not an impertinent interference in people's private lives, nor is it a disposable option that we can dispense with if we just don't like the idea. Nor is it the hobby of a few eccentric fanatics. So then what is it? It is the logical deduction from the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the logical deduction. We already had up here for us, didn't we? Uh, Romans. How will they hear if no one tells them? How will they go unless they're sent? I say to you again this morning, is, is to talk about these things is, is, is relatively easy. To do them is something different, isn't it? And most of us have been greatly helped by Rico Tice and, and exploring Christianity. And if we've listened to him talk, we have found ourselves under his scrutiny when he talks about pushing through the pain barrier in talking to your friend or your Aunt Mabel or whoever else it is, when you have to say, listen, here is what the Bible says. As a sinner and separated from God, you need a Savior. Now, what? we are never going to do that. We are never going to do that unless we're absolutely convinced of the truth and the power and the relevance of the gospel. If we are not convinced of the truth, the power, and the relevance of the gospel, then there is no reason under God's heaven to go out and say anything to anyone. Unless, of course, all we want to offer is a kind of utilitarian, middle-class Christian experience that makes people feel better about themselves. The area in which I minister is full of really nice people, like Bangor. There are a lot of nice people here. I've met some of them already, and um, some of them even here. And uh, uh, the the news in my community amongst people is, if there is a good God, then he will presumably reward nice people for doing their best. If there's a good God, he'll reward nice people for doing their best. And then they say, and since I'm relatively nice, I think I've got a good chance. Well, what are we going to say? We're only going to be able to say what the Bible says. The only company that ends up here, you will notice, is the company that is cleansed and is clothed. Cleansed from sin and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Luther, a religious monk, (laughs) ordained to the to, to, to being a monk in Erfurt, 
goes up to Rome in search of some kind of spiritual transformation, and he comes back an increasingly disillusioned man until he suddenly understands the gospel, that this is not a righteousness that I'm supposed to produce myself, but this is a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. That's our message, to speak to our world concerning these things. It may be politically uh, wrong. It may be offensive to some. But I'll tell you what, if you sit with people on the bus and just let them talk to you, the doors will open quicker than we can even realize. So how's your life? Is everything going well? Have you ever been ill? People will open up. They will tell you, and I'll tell you what they'll tell you. My world is broken. I've got a broken relationship with my dad. I've got a broken relationship with my wife. I've got a a mother who's facing cancer, and I'm afraid. And before you know where you are, there's an opportunity to say, is there somebody who deals with all that brokenness? And that's exactly what happens. It's interesting, and I've really enjoyed the singing so far. I hope you have too. But it's interesting that in in the phases of of church life— and where we are now, there, apart from Higher Throne, I don't really know many hymns that have been written about that, uh, that eventuality. Uh, those of us who are brought up with, uh, with harps and with vials, there stands a great throng in the presence of Jesus to sing this new song. And then that amazing stanza, all these once were sinners, defiled in your sight, now arrayed in pure garments with praise they unite unto him who has loved us and washed us from sin. That's the picture. No one goes in without the wedding garment. The wedding garment is not engendered as a result of activities. The wedding garment is provided by grace in Jesus. But our time is gone, and the picture remains. If you look carefully, you'll probably be able to pick some people out. Look in your mind's eye and see if you can see the lady we're going to be thinking about in a couple of days' time, the lady who was looking for love in all the wrong places. If you look carefully, you'll see she's up there. This is not Where's Waldo, incidentally. This is, this is where's, where's the Multitude. And, and, and if you look just a, a little bit along from her, there's that little fellow, that little cheap man who, who climbed up a tree hoping to see Jesus. He's there. You can find, if you look very carefully as well, that there are a number of all kinds of different colors— Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. And you will see there's a black man there who was reading uh, Isaiah in his chariot after he was coming home from the, the World Mission Conference in Jerusalem. And, and when, he, when he was encountered by that little guy, Philip, who ran up beside him, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like uh, Dustin Hoffman running up to meet uh, Morgan Freeman. And as a result of that, uh, this transaction takes place. What about the thief? You'll see him up there. He just got in in the nick of time, didn't he? This man has done nothing wrong. I'm up here getting what I deserve. Oh, Lord, will you remember me? Today? When when I got here on Saturday, it was raining, like lashing, at least in Dublin. And as as I got ready to navigate my way here. I was thinking about Saturdays in Glasgow. And I was actually thinking about coloring, Jamie, because I used to—I had to do something. And, uh, and sometimes you got those things from the stationers that, that 
All you had to do was get a paintbrush and dip it in water, and then you did it on the, on the top, <laughs> and then people came up. I said, how did they get there? All, all I did was this. And Jesus, on that great day of the feast, said, is anybody thirsty? Let them come to me and drink. So we go out into all the world to thirsty people, and we offer them the water of life in Jesus. And suddenly they appear up on the screen, added to the company. Samuel Rutherford, who ministered in the borders of Scotland and was a divine by every standard of the word, his diaries given to Mrs. Cousins, who was the husband of a Presbyterian minister, uh, were turned on one occasion into a 33 stanza poem. And a few verses of that were then put to music, uh, giving us the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. Rutherford, in his journals, says this. You, you remember um, the, the, the song is, uh, you know, the bright eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not look on glory, but on the king of grace, not on the crown he giveth, but on his nail-pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And, and, and she, she wrote this for, for uh, Rutherford. O Anwith, by the Solway, to me thou still art dear. In from the edge of heaven I shed for thee a tear. And if one soul from Anwith meets me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. A company that no one can number. Some of us are still praying for our children to be added. Some of us are praying for our loved ones and our friends. I know we're all praying. And we need to be reminded that God will accomplish his purposes and therefore be encouraged. Just a moment of silence, and then um, David will take us, take us home. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.